Investing insights with Right Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate and helping property investors gain financial security. G'day everyone, how are you going? Uh, welcome to Investing Insights with the Right Property Group. Big intro there. Huge. Uh, <laughs> I do like the guitar riff, and I can imagine you of the evening sort of going into some little man cave somewhere, Steve, and plugging in your uh, your Fetacaster into a an amplifier and blasting down the house with some Norwegian death metal that you <laughs> <laughs> like, like to play. No, no. I could just picture it, right? I'm not a muser. That's more Vic's game, not mine. <laughs> Did you play the guitar, do you? No, no. 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 That was a New Year's resolution five years, four years ago, and uh, yeah, I can pick one string. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Didn't you have a goals template out too that you were? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it wasn't pertinent enough, right? Yeah. So we're all fallible. How do you find, you know, all this, uh, here we are in in back end of February having a chat two months after New Year's Eve. Most people given up on their New Year's resolutions, you think, so far? Pretty much, yeah. pretty much, yeah. And if you look at it, pretty much you know, you've got, gone past one-fifth of the year mm. when you really look at it. And time flies. So if you're not focused and if you're not making the goals pertinent, a la the guitar, then it doesn't happen. Was that a smart goal? No, it wasn't. No. I don't even know what smart means. I remember the last podcast, we called it the smart goal, not the smart That's goal. That's right. Yeah, because we didn't know what the R and the T was. <laughs> I surround myself with idiots. <laughs> <laughs> what, in your man cave? Yeah. yeah. Playing Just- a mandolin. <laughs> But like, do you get this big pickup of people calling you up in January, going, "Oh, I've had an epiphany over a couple of glasses of wine or champagne on New Year's Eve. I need to take my life in control and and start investing in property and changing my life and being a better contributor to my family." Does that happen? Naturally, we get a little bit of a spike in January in terms of inquiries, but mm. most of our clients, you know, people that follow us in this education channel. These podcasts, our blogs, other podcasts as well. And so therefore, they have been pacing themselves. And often, New Year's, January tends to be more of a reset because usually we are on holidays and then Mm. we're starting a new year. So people sort of try and begin or pick up from where they left off or what they didn't do last year. But again, there is a big drop off. If you don't get enough momentum in the beginning, there is a bigger drop off, particularly Mm. by the time you hit Easter. It's all too late if you haven't got the momentum behind you. But, you know, you don't need to wait to a change of year no. to start looking at strategies or changing what you're doing, whether or not you're currently a property investor and you're looking to evolve your portfolio or start investing in property. So, you know, everyone does these, I think we did it sort of in January, hey, mm. new year, new decade, you know, plan your decade, design your decade. You don't need to wait for massive milestones to start doing that, though. No, so no, at no, any point in time of the year, you should be You don't need the massive milestones, but what we find is after – major events, things start to percolate as well. So that might be a reduction in interest rates or it mm. might be yeah, the latest figures showing what you need to retire on mm. and people have a mild panic attack and say, well, I better start doing something. So there's triggers. There's always triggers. Okay. So nice natural segue for me to look at. So when these triggers happen and triggers you can't control might be economic factors or changes in interest rates, which may stimulate some sort of decision-making process or a trigger might be manufactured. It might be something where you change jobs or you get a pay rise or you're changing your family situation. There's triggers there which might help make, change your paradigm towards property investment. When these triggers happen, what I want to do is pick your guys, get some real tangible stuff for our listeners. What are the five questions you need to ask when any of these triggers happen, whether oh, manufactured or mm-hmm. they're environmental or situational? And the best property investors I know, and obviously I've worked with you guys for many years and you've helped shape my attitude or um, perceptions towards this are really reactive and responsive. They're aware. 
you've got to be aware as a property investor and to your point, Steve, you said many, many times, it's not a passive investment property. You need to be aware. Like being aware doesn't necessarily mean you need to do anything, but mm. you've got to be in the game always to actually understand and be conscious or being receptive to when these triggers take place. Absolutely, because it's the blood of the body is education, is having mm. a finger on the pulse of not just your scenario, but an economic scenario if you choose to invest in any asset class, and it just perpetuates from there. Yeah. Okay, so what we'll do, I, you know, I've worked up, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, waiting for you guys to come to the studio, and I want these, and I've, I've just documented them, and I'll throw them at you, and I'm sure you guys will be happy sort of rattling these out, but... I've sort of framed these on the basis of for first-time investors who might be new to the game or anyone who has a a portfolio, whether it's two, three properties, which two properties is representative of most property investors, all the way through to those with many properties, you know, with large portfolios is all as relevant as each other or irrespective of who you are as a property investor. So first question, what are the first three things you should do at any point in time if you're starting to think about investing in property or as a trigger which may change the way in which you're considering investing in property. Stephen? I think the number one thing would, first of all, to take stock. And Mm. and take stock actually has many other sub-meanings, if you will. And so those other meanings could be, well, what am I trying to achieve here? No matter what the asset class is, no matter what the investment vehicle is, what am I trying to achieve is the first one. The second one is create or knowing what you can afford. Yeah, yeah, Uh, Because what you can afford will often, if not always, dictate what you can invest in and where you should invest once again, no matter what the asset class looks like to you and your affordability. And the third one is education. Like You have to have some clue on what you're investing in. And in today's world of technology, there is so much education for free, good and bad, that is out there. But you need to take the time to actually start to dig deep and delve into it, consume it, absorb it and have at least an understanding. Yeah, so I think the important thing here, Steve, is that we need to make sure that we don't confuse the um, education with noise, right? So there is, at the moment, a lot of noise everywhere, particularly with social media, uh, the ease of transferring information. So when you're trying to get started or when you're trying to add to your portfolio, often what you find is that you don't know which way to turn And the reason you're not able to do that is, back to your first point, is you haven't taken stock, right? So if you take stock, that'll then filter out a lot of the noise and then you'll only pursue the pertinent stuff, pertinent to your own financial situation. And therefore, you'll be then focusing on the right education, be it, so right now, if you take into account the current cycle of newsworthy stuff right so it's commercial there's you know big debate happening between whether do i start with commercial do i start with residential or do i just rent first or do i buy my principal place of residence first right now if you haven't taken stock with where you are right now all of this is irrelevant because you can't decide on which track to take unless you know where you're starting from and by far regardless of where you are in your investing journey you must take stock first. Then I suppose the next thing is affordability in a, and that also translates to being able to borrow money. So how much can you borrow and how much capital have you got, which will then determine the strategy. Well, inherently your risk profile also, hmm. just that internal risk profile that you have could potentially steer you into an asset type class result that you're looking for based on you know, what is your risk yeah. profile. And your skill sets. And a good example of that might be that you want to delve into Bitcoin because you're after a quick win and it's on the run as an asset vehicle or as a, an investment vehicle, or it could be commercial. 
could be regional property, could be blue chip. Mm-hmm. So once you've worked that out, you can then start to educate yourself potentially on the ins and outs and the stuff behind so, it. So taking stock is a comparative analysis, right? Mm-hmm. There's no use being educated about stuff if you don't have something to benchmark it against. As in, what is the purpose of being educated? Because you're educating yourself on the basis of decision-making. Correct. Correct. And that's comparative and everyone's yep. unique and different. Mm-hmm. But if, at the end of the day, people don't have an information problem. They have an execution problem. Yeah, it's a good point. Because there's so much of it out there. It's just, well, when do I take that step? Mm. When, I, when do I think I'm ready? to take that first step. So execution, everything's nothing unless you can execute. It's only a concept. Mm. Okay. So that's what you need to do first. Second point here I I put in terms of what you need to consider, what you need to ask yourself at any given time during your property portfolio, whether you're a first-time investor or there's some trigger for you to reassess where you're going in life. How many properties do you need, Steve? That's probably the wrong question to ask, but it's probably the question everyone asks you. It's the question that everybody asks, but it's the wrong question because the answer is, two words it depends Mm. and it is as broad as that because i don't think anybody can sit down and say well yeah i want to create a hundred thousand dollars it's a great idea Mm -hmm. but a hundred thousand dollars in 20 years time may not be enough or it might be too much because of you know other things that have happened along in that journey so i think rather than asking how many properties do i need the very first tan it's about setting tangible goals along the way because otherwise everything's too far away. So to have a long-term goal of replacing an income, which is the most common one that we get in uh, for many, many years, is to how do I replace my income, my PAYG income. That's great. But now let's reverse engineer it to 12-month goals. What's the first 12-month goals that I should achieve? Two years, five years, 10 years, hence design a decade. Mm. Then reassess to what that end goal looks like. But a lot of people don't start with the end goal in mind. It's all about how do I get started mm-hmm but forget realistically how do I achieve the goal at the end? And there's a difference between having the goal, but how do I achieve it? So this currency, Vic, around how many properties do I need, I'm, I'm probably partly responsible for this because there's a question I ask everyone that comes on, oh, how many properties you got? And that's normally the start of it. And it gives you some sense of- Badge of honour. Uh, yeah, but it gives you some sense of someone's sophistication. Like, you know, as in, I've got 10 properties, so they've been doing a bit of it. They're going to have a bit of scar tissue. They've been in the process. So a lot of this, you know, it's a badge of honour. How much do you have? And that gives you the um, some sort of emphasis on your success as a property investor, how many properties you've got, which is largely irrelevant. You know, you can have 10 properties, you have three properties, the outcome mm-hmm. might be the same or might be better with three properties. Yeah. Right. So this whole question about how many properties do I need and the question being it depends, it's just a part of the product of getting to where you need to go. So so. People that go, I want 10 properties and that's going to be my goal. That's not a goal. That's not a goal. That, that's a wish list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's more brag rights. And perhaps um, we all all try and brag about how many we've got in our portfolio and all that, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things I've been very deliberate right from the outset is never really talking about the numbers well, in my know, portfolio. I don't know how big, yeah. I don't know how big your we don't portfolio talk about is. It. Yeah. I know that's significant, but- yeah. But know, it's irrelevant. Yeah, I just yeah. don't know. That's well, right. And that's really important to understand that um, the reason why we don't talk about that is not because of secrecy or anything like that, but more so so that we don't take the focus away from what's achievable on an individual basis. Mm. In the sense that if we're then talking about numbers, then most people say, oh, geez, I want to oh, do that. Because generally that's what they want to emulate is they want to have- someone to aspire towards, mm. right? And if we then start talking about property numbers rather than property results, it starts becoming very dangerous because then the focus is all on accumulation and we're never talking about 
How are you going to retire the debt? What does it look like in the end? And equally importantly, what happens when the interest rate changes and what happens when life changes? How are we going to handle this, right? And the more properties you have, the more admin you have as well. There's no doubt about job. it. Yeah, it's job, right? So you're replacing your current job with another job, which you admittedly could do from anywhere, but it is still a big admin burden. And one, as you say, the amount of properties is irrelevant. It's what they produce. Yes. Yeah. You could have 20 crappy properties mm. and have less equity and less cash flow than someone who has two yep. well-located investment-grade properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So it needs to come back to your individual level as to, again, capital affordability in terms of the negative cash flow and also what you're trying to achieve and what your comfort level is. So are you comfortable holding a million dollar debt or are you more comfortable holding uh, you know, four um, smaller debts equating to say million, million and a half, right? So that's really important that we focus it that way so that it's individualized and not try and compete on the numbers. Perhaps compete with yourselves in terms of the result, but never the numbers. Yeah, and it is all about the result and where the end position is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how many properties are in there. As someone who, and you know, a little bit different to you guys, because for what I do, you know, within smart property investment, we make our portfolio mm. available to all and sundry, and, and how many properties are in it. And I can tell you, it's more of a headache having more properties. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. No, that's a poor fill, right? You know, as people are going to yeah, say, first, oh yeah, first well, well, first world problems. But you know, the more properties you have, the harder it is. You it know. Is. Think about how many moving parts there are to one property, let alone mm. multiply that by a factor of 10 or 5 or 100 or whatever it may be. And I think, just coming back to the point, though, I think most people lack an overall strategy, mm. Mm. You know, a full encompassing strategy. They just bumble along and say, well, I'll just collect as many as I can while I can and what I can afford, and it'll just work itself out in the so, long run. Well, one of my questions around that, mm-hmm. so so we park that idea around strategies and being conscious of time, Um I'm also conscious that none of my particular questions I've got here, guys, speak specifically towards financing, no. but this is an undertone of that and as Absolutely. a utility enabler across everything. But it's sort of connected with this. And, and this question is, who is the team I need around me to be a successful property investor? And one of them is going to be a mortgage broker, no doubt, because yeah. finance is key. Absolutely. The team that you should create runs very deep, mm. but there are a few fundamental core people, which we believe, and when we look at successful investors, 99% of them have this team around them. So let's talk about the mortgage broker or a finance expert. Mm. And there is a big difference between a good broker or a good financier and a very mediocre one. Anyone can get you one property or even potentially two in terms of finance, but a good broker is actually quite strategic and they're looking three to four down the track. So a broker, tick that one off. An accountant. Uh, a property account- accountant. A property accountant. Or even a business accountant because they have yeah. a different filter as yeah. well. But- an accountant that is interested in your goals and asks what your goals are. They're proactive rather than reactive. And I think we've spoke about that on other podcasts before. So an accountant, we'd like to think an advisor, a property investment advisor, as opposed to just a buyer's agent. And there is a very big difference. Huge difference. Which, which bucket do you guys fall into? We're advisors and buyer's agents. And okay. The difference is that a buyer's agent is given a scope or a brief and they go get. Mm. Whereas an investment advisor is actually creating the strategy identifying the areas that suit the strategy and the property types and then implementing the strategy via the advocacy. Okay. Okay, so there's a massive difference. I also think somewhere down the track you'll need a fin planner or a financial planner mm-hmm. because you start to roll into other legalities. That's toward the tail end sometimes and sometimes at the front end. But there, 
I'm trying to sound nice here. There's not many fin planners that are property orientated. And so finding those is essential. But I think you probably see that starting to change, Victor, because the way in which financial planners are remunerated has changed considerably. So they're not necessarily product orientated around selling commissions. Now the most of them are fee for service. So I guess one of the questions we're sitting down in front of financial planner, the first Mm. question you've got to ask is, you know, unfortunately in this case, how many properties have you got, Mm. right? Because how can they advise you in terms of property or shares for that matter? If they haven't got skin in the game themselves, they haven't got the battle wounds themselves. And it's not just about property though, it's Mm. about diversification. Yeah. You shouldn't be all in on one asset class. That's That's, it's just silly. And Mm. it just opens you up to inconsistencies within one asset market, I think. Mm. And then as we dig a little deeper in terms, in I believe anyways, who should be in the team, it could run through to your property manager, mm. you know, who control the property for you. So finding a good property manager who communicates well is essential. And then you could go all the way down to you know, depreciation companies. And usually when you're starting out, right, so and it's not uh, the team gets added as their role becomes important, right? So it is as simple as asking your initial team player as to what's in the click, Mm. right? Because if you take into account our clientele, a large portion of them we put into our people that we've used consistently because they get it. They are either our clients, these professionals are our clients, or they have done so many transactions for us, they know exactly the methodology, they know exactly what's needed, and the communication is next level pertinent to the strategy, right? Because they've been educated in that. It's Mm -hmm. not like one of the, I think it was last fortnight, we're talking about a client who had used their own solicitor for an interstate purchase. Now, solicitors, nothing against them, but they are busy people, and they're renowned for not returning phone calls. And this non-returned phone call cost my client $2,500, which was a reduction we were chasing. Mm. Uh, and that wasn't able to be quantified and locked down in the right time frame. So we actually lost that window of opportunity purely because it was the wrong team member. Right professional, but wrong team member in that team because the click wasn't there. There wasn't an open communication backwards and forwards. And that was the next team member I was going to talk about is mm-hmm. a solicitor or conveyancer. And, and maybe to just to go further a little bit and explain it in a different way is some professionals think that they are better than other professionals. So, And once again, I'm not being targeting any particular professional here, but a- Steve Waters hate list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for your hate mail, what's the email? Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, Steve at <laughs> Right Property Group. Yeah, that's it. It's dot com only. Yeah. <laughs> so, but a, an accountant may think they have- you know, more weight than the solicitor and vice versa or mm-hmm. the property advisor or the finance broker. And rather than thinking of it as a click, thinking it as open avenues of communication where no egos are brought to That's the table. That's right. That's right. right. Because everybody should be pulling in the same direction for the client. And there's a couple of questions around team formation. Number one, who should be the primary professional on your team? Because, I don't, I don't because wanna... sometimes you talk about a power play, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. the accountant will be, well, do it this way. Then a strategist will say, do it this way. And the mortgage broker will go, no, no, those guys got it completely wrong. You know, it's good if your team all know each other and already have some yeah. some sort of connectivity and professional experience. But often they're disparate people and you'll get a power play. Yeah. This is going to sound a little bit biased, but it really – so I'll preface it by saying it depends on which team member you start with. Okay. So if you've been seeing an accountant, as an example – for a very long time, you have a great working relationship with them. They're proactive, they're goal orientated, and they say, look, you'd need to, or we suggest you do this, and then you engage an advisor. Mm. Well, then maybe for a certain point of time, the accountant is the most important person. And 
let me clarify that by saying different times of your journey, there'll be the different professions will have more weight mm. in and you know, perhaps intention for your outcome. But if you're seeing an investment advisor to begin with who is literally taking your financial situation, creating a plan based on your goals and financials and so on and so forth, and who are going to be there for the long term, and, and I say that quite deliberately because it's easy to go and get a property, but it's how you control it afterwards, yeah. as we do. We have our reviews and so on. So I actually think the advisor, and I'm not just saying just us, it could be a, any good advisor, I actually think that they potentially could carry the weight. Well, it's a continuity. It's important, but I completely agree with your point. When I look at our journey as property investors, there's points at times where the professional as part of our team has more emphasis than at other times, right? Like there's continuity with my planning and strategy and and you're always sort of, you know, checking and see where we're going. But like as where we are right now in our property journey, the mortgage broker is probably the most important person because I need to drive down you know, Correct. the cash position of the portfolio. So I need to be getting them doing most of the work and most of the heavy lifting for me right now because it is strategically the most important thing Correct. to be doing. And if both, let's say it's your accountant in this case, your accountant and your mortgage broker don't have that connectivity, the accountant might be saying, look, you need to go into a different entity here. Mm. We suggest a proprietary limited company yeah. or whatever it may be. And the broker might be saying that's really good from a protection point of view or diversification point of view, but I can't get finance in that entity. That's where ego comes in if, that, if there isn't the click in mm. there. So that's why it's important to have a you know, majority, if not all, of your team players of the same ilk there. They're looking after your best interest. Otherwise, what happens is this power play starts happening and the victim is you because it will impact you. It won't impact the accountant. It won't impact the broker in a, uh, a financial way. It will impact you because you're not getting all of the team players pulling in the same direction and having your best interest at heart. So if we look at your scenario, mm. how many times have we sat with the accountant and the broker oh, all together around the board table yeah. and said, right, where are we going to from here? It and happens. and, and yeah. hashed it out. But we're not knocking anybody else. We're not saying that solicitors and advisors and everybody have their own interests or vested interests at heart. It's just actually finding the people that, A, that you gel with and that can communicate with you, that but therefore communicate with each other. With each other. Yeah. And I think you need to separate it between what is a transactional relationship versus what is more of a strategic, a strategic relationship mm-hmm. and not discounting the very capable advice you get from a very good conveyancer. It's Correct. a very transactional part of the process of buying property. You need to make sure you're getting the right advice at the right time, right? Everyone has a part to play. Yeah, absolutely. But I think there's another key part of this team which we haven't spoken about, but it's a really important part of it, natural peer group. So we've spoken about professional team, but these are people who aren't professional. These are people who you have a shared common interest with, i.e. property investors. And I mean, when I started investing and I went to um, – some of those sessions that you do mm-hmm. out in Parramatta, which I think mm-hmm. you also do down in Melbourne, Melbourne yep. Yep. now, where it's just a pool of like-minded people who are looking to be educated, but it's got its own, you know, momentum, momentum. of, you know, peers sort of having a chat going, oh, what do you reckon about this? What do you reckon about that? This P2P learning is key. Do you know how that started? And this is the truth. Going back 20 years ago, 19 years ago, when the Trading Post really existed, and I didn't know any other investors, mm. you know, and our family didn't know any other investors, and we were starving for other like-minded people. So we put an ad in the trading post, say, hey, like-minded investors, you want to get together? One person turned up. You actually put a thing in the trading post. <laughs> yep. There was not, but this is Old like, school. This, yeah, the, the internet was new. Dial-up yeah. days. Dial-up. Yeah. We had one person turn up. The next week, we said, oh, let's all get together. Next week, this is awesome. And next week, four people turned up. Within six months, 100 people, we had to move venues. Is that how that started? Yeah. It's how it started way back. And it, to the point, because 
at that point in time, everything was a little bit of a secret society and it wasn't barbecue bread mm, There was no podcasts, I'll tell you. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> there was no radio back There's then. no radio. And that's how it started and morphed into what it is today. And so when we, we have our events, whether it be in Parramatta or Melbourne uh, and the like, it's an open forum of like-minded people getting together. And even if you're just wanting to learn versus people that have got 10, 5, 3 properties, whatever it may be, mm. it's not a pitch from the stage. It's an open forum, which is what we love. Yeah. And you should build out your own network. So I've got mates I go and connect with, you know, and and we do it. We try and do it once a quarter, but it normally happens sort of twice a year where we just get together and chat about what we're doing, right? They're, they're not professionals. They're just punters like me who are out there trying to scratch your living out of investing in property, right? You know? But they're the people, the like-minded people that are in property as yeah. opposed to the like unlike-minded people that might be chair-orientated. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you're just going to end up in arguments. Yeah, yeah. And it challenges your ideas and can keep you accountable as well. So if you don't have a, a peer group as part of your team as a property investor, I highly encourage you to do it. And there's heaps of chats, chat things that you can like hook up with people now and go yeah, have a, a coffee with them. Of those. Yeah. yeah, A lot of people, they're a bit sort of vocal and people who are really vocal on chat rooms normally yeah, you just got to yeah. be careful of the information that you receive and the, yeah. and the experience behind it. All right. I think we've done that really well. So this fourth point around what you need to ask yourself, if there's a trigger in your property investment journey or if you're just starting out and you're thinking about property investing, what are the strategies available to me as a property investor? And the way I'd like you guys to try and frame this for me, and, and I, I think this is the way I, I think, is the difference between strategies and tactics. Because so I think people get this completely wrong and they put the tactics first thinking that a tactic is a strategy and it's not like it's a negative gearing strategy, you mm. know, like you, which I'm sure you hear Good all one. the time. Yeah, you know, negative gearing is not a strategy. You know, flipping property is not a strategy. It's a tactic for you to achieve a strategic goal. So can you sort of split that up for me? Is it a Victor question? He loves smirking. I know he's uh, a <laughs> yeah, <he's> – like, <laughs> I could see him at home sort of sitting there. But what's that board game that you play, Risk? You know, uh, did you ever play as a student? You have like marathon four-day – games of risk and stuff, which is strategic. You're talking about university game. student? Yes. No, 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 never went there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 that's university. You probably played Dungeons and Dragons with your mates out the back probably. You know, I've got a roll and a dice that says. <laughs> Jumanji, Jumanji, the original version. Yeah. Victor, strategies versus tactics. Versus tactics. Thank I you. Th- I so think, the voice yeah. of sensibility and reason yeah, yeah. He went to university. I did actually. Yeah. I actually taught at university as well. Oh, did so, you? Yes. Well, so – one of the key things that you see, property investing or the mindset of would-be investors tend to be influenced by what courses or what marketing is out there right now. So every now and then we get a surge of people who want to flip properties and they get attracted to the sexiness of making instant money. The reality of it is that flipping property is a job, right? And it's a feast to famine approach because you need to have consistent flips to to make a consistent income. And then there also comes into play the ability to borrow money to flip to begin with. So anyone that's saying, I want to do property full-time, keep your job, right? Because you need your job to qualify for the loans. And that's the bottom line. The flipping does come into play, but it comes much later in the piece where you're starting to target pay down or you're now starting to target money for lifestyle rather than money for longevity, yeah, uh, for wealth creation and so forth. So that becomes a tactic. The other thing that most people get off on is subdivisions or major renovations. It is a tactic to get towards a strategy 
So it's a stepping stone to get towards a strategy. So a good example of it would be doing a major renovation is a good way to recapitalize, right? So you're boosting up your equity where you've built up your cash flow, but now you need to get some equity behind you. It would be a good way to recapitalize and perhaps protect your deposit in a falling market. So a different, while the strategy, the baseline strategy, which let's say in this case was to replace our income, that's the strategy that we've got as an underlying strategy. But along the way, we may need to change tack depending on the market. So therefore, it could be that we bring the renovation to the forefront or if the market is absolutely roaring forward, then we just get a really good buy and hold and let the market do the heavy lifting. And that's where you have all these adjustments happening. You said something there, which I think you will clarify. There's a difference between changing tack and a tactic. Yes. Just in case that was just rolled into one sentence. But I think for me, there is no tactics. Mm. If you think that investing, that there's tactics involved, at the end of the Mm. day, there's not. It's a strategy. Everything is strategized. Everything is deliberate. Everything is methodical. A tactic is how you approach an auction or, or how you negotiate or how you- It's the instant outcome. Correct. If you're looking at tactics for investing, you're looking at it completely the wrong way. As a property investor, so what are the strategies available? Because there's probably one strategy for property investors. I, I want to create wealth for X reason, insert your X, and it might be mm. to travel more, to retire early, to give back to the community, to do more philanthropic adventure, whatever it is, right? Mm. Most people invest in property for the strategy is to generate wealth. That's the, the strategy. Yeah. The strategies are- Capital growth, yep. as in you find stuff that's going to go up in value at a point in time you realise that value, or yield, you generate income so you put money in your back pocket. So essentially there's a, a capital growth strategy, if we just break it down into mm-hmm. the basics, there's a capital growth strategy and there's a cash flow strategy and the derivatives of that is potentially, I don't know, regional versus city mm-hmm. developments versus buy and hold. So it, it actually trickles down, but essentially it's cash flow capital. They're the major two strategies that people tend to identify with. And for the most, I think people approach them in the wrong fashion. It's not about whether you should do one or the other. It's how how can you actually combine both? Balance it out. Correct. And we've often been an advocate and we've been very vocal and public on what we think or the strategy that we employ, which is a combination of capital and capital growth and Mm -hmm. cash flow and creating a balanced portfolio. Even sometimes the properties are balanced themselves. Or part of the strategy for that particular property is to balance out. If you approach something that is absolutely left or right, one or the other, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Mm. So, you know, we, we share our investment journey on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au a lot and and I sort of get around a bit. People know what I do and people want to talk to me about property all the time because they listen to podcasts, which is cool. I get a real kick out of it. But people go, what's your strategy for? And I go, identify under market value property that are going to have long-term growth potential that at a point in time when I want to realise what that is, I will do it. That's pretty much my strategy. Mm. I don't yet know what – like I don't invest for a purpose of replacing my income. You know, I don't – I just – I sort of know that it will sort itself out at a point in time and that sort of works for me, which a lot of people don't particularly like mm. or don't get it right, you know, because they've got a – but it is identify good properties that are going to grow in value that don't cost me too much to hold. Mm. That's my strategy. That's an okay strategy, isn't it? Well, if it doesn't cost you too much to hold, but really then that's a balanced – it's a balanced approach, which is essential because that gives you mitigation and the like. But when you talk about you know, purchasing under market value properties, that's just a subsection of the overall strategy. Mm. It should really, well, you'd like to say that it, 
Every property should be that, but identifying value, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. And the thing is that properties are never really under market value because the property is what you pay for it. So that is if you want to get, Yeah, if you yeah. want to get very You've technical. You've got to get technical. Correct. Anyway, okay, so the final point here, and this is an important one when you're considering if there's a trigger point in that's going to change the way you approach investing or if you're new to investing. How do I know I've got the right attitude or mindset to invest effectively, Victor? Right, if you... And we've sort of spoken, we've done a couple yeah, of podcasts absolutely. in the past have, around yeah. minds. I think the biggest litmus test for that is if you're up at night worrying about your portfolio, perhaps you're either investing or going about investing the wrong way mm. or you're just not cut out for it. And that's as, as brutal as it can be. Not everyone can do it. Not mm. everybody can invest in anything. Yeah. Just like not everybody can be self-employed. They want the consistency and just knowing that every mm. Friday they'll yeah, they pay mm. on X. Get a yellow envelope with cash in it. Yeah. Like I, remember those. I remember that. Yeah. What yes. was your first pay packet ever? Just <clears throat> my first time I ever received any money, my mum used to work at a photography studio back when you used to develop like stuff with chemicals and stuff. Right? If you, if you go down the path that you were the, <coughs> the model or something like that, I, I'm walking out. No, no, no. no. <laughs> so, so back in the day where there was a wedding photography place and she used to print all the photos, chemicals and stuff. So when I was about 12, I started doing the cleaning of that photography studio every second Saturday. I go down there and I have to dust all the frames and I wasn't very good at it, but that was the first pay packet I've ever got. How much? $12.50, I think, by memory, for cleaning this whole studio, which was massive, and I did it. And what normally used to happen, I think, was that I'd go and do it and then sit around and and not do bust it, and then my mum would go and finish the half-assed job. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's got to be self-employed because he's he's never going to hold down a job. That's that's the first ever pay pack I got. It's the first ever job. And I've had, like, I reckon hundreds of jobs from that point, you know, just a bloke getting by in my uh, university days and – being a bit of a vagrant traveling around the world. But uh, I've had a lot of different pay packets. It's interesting. Yeah. What about yours, Vic? I was just thinking back while, while Phil was talking, and uh, it was actually, obviously, back in Fiji. And I can remember two occasions where I actually got cash money in my hand. The first one was while I was still in high school and I helped harvest cane, sugar cane. That's hard um, going. So, yeah, that's hard going. So it's manual. Mm. I'm not with the machines and all that. So uh, I think... I was relegated to the water boy. So, you know, you, you give water to all the cane harvesters and mm. uh, you got a rider off whatever they made. And I think I made a principally sum of $26 that month, yeah, which was not yeah. bad for back then. But my first real pay packet was during uh, immediately after the uh, cyclones in Fiji where I got a job doing this survey. So, so going to home after home to see what they've lost and whether they needed government help. And I uh, got a princely sum of $81.09 for a whole month's worth of work. It's pretty good. And Fijian dollars. Fijian, Fijian yeah. dollars, yeah. And that was you big buy money. A lot of, yeah. How many cases of VG, uh, sorry, Fiji bitter <laughs> could have you bought with that? Anyway? I wasn't <laughs> drinking back then. That was back in 1985, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, was, that was the old Carver days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Yeah, but if we come back to where, where, where we are, well, we've got Steve's story. Yeah. His first pay packet. I used to on school holidays. I used to wash cattle trucks. Okay, and that'd be nice. No job. shit. <laughs> Very good, Victor. And my, my, you're gonna have to put a little e in this podcast now for explicit language. Yeah, that. We'll beep it. My first, that, no, that was a good one. My first pay packet was five dollars, mm-hmm. and. I did that and I saved and I saved. And the very first thing I remember rewarding myself with was a red skateboard. Wow. The plastic one? 
They still got it? Fiberglass yeah, one, yeah, with yeah. ones that hook up on yeah, both yeah, ends. Yeah, yeah, Old school. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. I was good. a skater boy. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Have you still got the skateboard? No, it'd be yeah. worth a fortune, I suppose. It'd be a collector's Retro, yeah. 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 Sorry, Vic. So, <laughs> talking about mindset. Yeah, yeah. Mindset. The, the attitude towards yes. planning for your future yeah, when you're young, absolutely. I think, generally, <laughs> money is good. Can you bring yeah. it back? I, yeah. I, think, I think to bring it back to perspective, we need to look at how a household economy works, right? And this is where it becomes real. Obviously, there's uh, several tiers to household financial activity. One is transaction or expenditure, so income and expenditure to live. Then you've got your borrowing or your credit, so your credit cards or borrowing to buy a home, all this sort of stuff. Then comes insurance. This is your normal expenditure. Then comes savings. And guess what comes last? Investing. Really? Right. Yeah. yeah. Investing comes last. And this is, this is pretty much ABS surveys and all that. So um, mm. I'll try and find the link to put in the show notes. So in most cases, if you have a stock takeoff of your financials, if you're not able to pay off your credit card in full at the end of each month, I guess the insurance, the savings and the investments all go out of the window. Mm. Hence, when you look at the number of property investors in Australia, circa 2.3 million of a population of 26 million, that sort of explains it because majority of the people that can actually invest haven't got the money to invest. And therefore, if you haven't got the backing, the financial backing or the financial nuance to actually start investing, the first step is to start saving, right? So if you know that you are a consistent saver, you know that you'll be good at investing. But that too has got a little bit of a problem in there because if you are a prolific saver, then it becomes a bit hard to part with the money as well. You squirrel yeah. the cash away. Yeah, that's right. So it's very hard to pay the deposits and all that because you don't want to see the bank balance depleting. And this is a mindset thing, right? Yeah. For me, as we said earlier, not everybody will be an investor of any asset class, but until you can rationalise your relationship with debt, yeah. you won't be an investor, mm. a successful one. And we've talked about that in the past in other podcasts, mm-hmm. and you should go back and listen to it. But for us, that's just a keystone. That's a really interesting thing. Like, you know, when I think of my relationship with debt, I feel like I don't have any debt. That's quite funny. Like, I never think about like I have no debt. Like I actually have no debt. I've got a credit card, but it's, it's zero balance. I have no personal finance. I have no store credit. I have nothing whatsoever. But I've got a whole bunch of mortgages, but I don't really think of it as debt because it's quite you, strange, isn't it? You've been able to segregate productive versus non-productive debt. Mm-hmm. And it's a really – and I'm the same. I don't have a credit card. Like I'm completely debt-free, yeah. Yeah. you know, is, is my I don't my have store view. cards. Bank might think otherwise, but – Yeah, although I did get a fine the other day from a video easy shop that now longer from <laughs> 1987 or something. But I just don't like unproductive debt mm. for a myriad of reasons, but it's just – I don't know. But until you can be comfortable with it is another mm. way to put it, yeah. sleep at night. You got to work it out yourself. Now, I have here in the middle of the studio table a piece of paper which I've just opened, and it's a question. Mystery Steve. question? Yes, and uh, this has been put together by your team, and I haven't read this before. I'm going to read it out, and we're going to see how we go. So, this is questions, this. <laughs> questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au is what you need to know. So, this way you get any questions about the podcast or just about what you guys do in general, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nice. No, says, hi, guys. Listen to the show regularly and love the segments. I have a question about. A reoccurring theme I hear coming from you about being liquid. I understand the principle of this, having as much actual money sitting in offset so you can use it when you need. However, I'm interested in how this actually happens and a strategy and challenges for doing so. 
question, how would you approach this with your mortgage broker? Another question, how little would you draw out to make the cash liquid and how often? Another question, what would you base your decision on LBR position? Uh, I know these questions will be very different from person to person depending on their strategy, but fundamentally, I'd like to understand how it works. Cheers, Dan. So thanks, Dan, for writing in. So liquidity. Good question. It is different for everybody, so I'll try to remember all of the points questions there and answer a few so how do you do it and how much like dan's mentioned offset facilities they're a great tool Mm. however they are not a great tool if the person that has the offset has no discipline because it is liquid that's right the more that you put in the the temptation is to take accessibility accessibility liquidity versus accessibility maybe it's a thing for a liquidity versus equity equity because you could have equity in the property and not be liquid, so therefore you mm. can't touch it until. Yeah. Now, but there is a saying out there: while you can borrow, you should borrow, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should use it. All right. So that might be a line of credit or a redraw facility or setting up a new loan with an offset facility, which you park equity into, so mm. that it is usable. Should it be? It does affect potentially serviceability in some scenarios, especially if it's a redraw facility or a line of credit. I should say, because the lender is looking that is accessible and it could stop you going forward. It could also affect the cash flow once you use it. So whilst if we go back to the offset facility where you're saving interest repayments, that when you start to use it, it will affect the overall cash flow position of the portfolio. And it can, for some people, give a little bit of a false positive in the immediate cash flow scenario. Mm. How much you should have is the million dollar question. And I would get asked this on a daily basis because remember the liquidity is there for two purposes. One, as a buffer. And two, to enable you to be opportunistic when you can and should, being the operative words. The buffer is the question that we get off, how much should it be? And everybody's different. Victor is different from me. I need a year's worth of sleep at night. So I need, this is just me personally, I need a year's worth of pre-tax shortfall plus living expenses put aside. It's a lot of money. Well, it's- it your Bobcat fuel bill is probably about $20,000 a year, right? Just oh, let's to- not talk about it. just cost me a fortune, the Bobcat. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> That's, he uses the bobcat to move his money around. You know that, right? Scrooge No, 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 no. It's in my offset. So it's all in your offset. So it's, it's liquid, but it's so it's a good point. It's liquid and it's accessible. You have the discipline for it to be accessible. Correct. But it has utility, as in it's meaning that you're paying less interest. Correct. But it also, once again, gives me the ability to be opportunistic should mm. I need to be. And once again, the buffer, everybody is different. Vic might only want three months. And Vic mentioned earlier one of the other points that you made, the sleep at night factor. Mm-hmm. That is my barometer. Mm. Yeah, And I need X amount in there for me to sleep at night and everybody's different. So what needs to happen for you to touch that and go all in and go, oh, that's such a good opportunity. I'm going to reduce my my buffer to six months rather than one year. Have you ever compromised on that or you're that diligent where you go, no, nah. Uh, no. I've got to get up over twelve months, and I'll spend that. It's like when you play the pokies down at the pub, right? You know, you put it, you, you put it, you put it double again. <laughs> no, no, no. no look, this is the mentality. It's a very similar. You put a hundred bucks in, and then it goes, bloop, goes one hundred fifty dollars. You go, okay, I'm only going to pay, play with the fifty dollars now because I've got my hundred back, yeah. no doubt. But people always drive it down to zero again, mm. right? That's, they have the discipline to take the hundred. Yeah, out. I see where you're trying to head me there. Yeah. I wouldn't do it on the pokies. I don't play it, but. <laughs> For property is different because it's what I do every day. Mm. And I have, I actually have a buffer on a buffer to mitigate that. Okay. I'm actually quite compartmentalized. So I know X amount's got to be in this offset, sub offset for 
you know, registrations or this or that or whatever it may be. So I'm quite squared away so that I can take advantage of opportunities. However, it wasn't always that way. Yeah. And it's a really important point. There, When I first started, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. There was no guidance, hence mm. the tra- ad in the training post. And I wouldn't suggest that everybody just breaks the golden rules just because it's an opportunity. Good. Yeah. The other form of liquidity comes to the property itself, right? So don't buy a property that's so unique that it's very hard to then on-sell it or to finance it. Really? If the bank is actually having kittens financing that property, it's not a liquid property, right? Now, obviously, you need to be looking at multiple lenders to come to the decision. And the forethought that you should always have is that things will go wrong. And you need to offload your portfolio. So you need to be making sure that it appeals to the masses, to the mum and dad investors, not your professional investors that'll come in and buy it at deep discounts. You need to make sure that there is enough ample buyers out there to buy it of you should you wish to sell it. There needs to be enough lenders out there to be willing to lend reasonable money on it should you want to be leveraging it. What, sorry, one more point because I know we're running out of time. Liquidity doesn't need to necessarily be an offset redraw line of credit it could be a share portfolio yeah whatever it may be as long Mm -hmm. as that money is working for you Mm -hmm. in some capacity yeah so liquidity isn't buying fancy french wine and that's an investment because it's very hard to move that stuff right yeah Yeah. so you found that out yeah yeah Yeah. i don't don't invest in fancy wine i'm more of an audi uh, (laughs) where i get my tipple from very good reds there by the way uh and the champagne is excellent was Um, that a sponsor that no it wasn't but uh, i'm happy to fly the flag for audi monsignor at uh, 21 dollars a bottle (laughs) it's as good as anything else right (laughs) anyway dan thanks so much for uh, sending that question in we do appreciate it and we want to do more of this as well so questions at rightpropertygroup.com.au is where you need to send them and that could just be about your portfolio and where you're thinking right now or something specific around this podcast or any podcasts that we do investing insights with the right property group so i hope you enjoyed that that's sort of the five questions you need to ask yourself when considering your portfolio where there's a trigger to do so if you're new to investing victor other information where do people go if they want to connect reach out Go to our socials on Facebook or go to our website, uh, writepropertygroup.com.au. All right. We'll be back uh, again next time. Uh, Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.